0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation chapter six, beginning in verse one. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold, a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them, that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. We have, after a long course of several years, finally come to the matter, the interpretation of the first prophetic figure. I suppose we could not avoid it forever. Now we have come to the difficulty. I had a very good question posed to me recently, and I hope the one who asked the question will not uh, mind me bringing it up here in public. The question is a good one. How confident can we be that our interpretation of these symbols is correct? In other words, as we look at these particular images and we endeavor to interpret them, how can we uh, be confident or how confident can we be in the interpretation of any particular image? I must confess that there is justification for a measure of reserve and hesitation. The images are famously difficult. Famously difficult. And when you consider the the dizzying number of interpretations that have been offered for every particular image, you are uh, acutely aware that if somebody has gotten them right, vast multitudes have gotten them wrong. And we certainly do not want to be numbered among those who have erred in the interpretation of them. So the task is daunting, but I did want to remind you of a point. I've made this from time to time in sermons, and I have you to remember it. There is no doubt that the interpretation of this book is difficult, but there is a chasm infinitely large between the concept difficult and the concept impossible. This book is difficult to interpret but it is not impossible. If we believe the interpretation of the book to be impossible we have to abandon hope and close it. But in our careful study of the first 5 chapters we have been led in a very different direction. Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. We travel back now to the very beginning of our uh, sermon series to those very first things that the Holy Spirit taught us about this book. Very useful to us now. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. This uh, book is called an apocalypsis, a revelation of Jesus Christ, Uh, quite literally an unveiling of matters. And this must be our first article of faith concerning this book. It is not a veiling and it is not a concealing. It is an unveiling and a revealing of things that had previously been hidden. And what was told us in the very first verse is further signified to us in Revelation chapters 5 and 6. The scroll was sealed, but now opened. And we have not been left with John to simply mourn the sealed up book but rather to rejoice with heaven and earth that the book has been opened. So we must counter any feelings of intimidation or despair with these reflections concerning what the Spirit is clearly teaching us about this book. It is difficult indeed, but its interpretation is possible. It is a revelation We might go a little further and say, uh, to counterbalance this, is just as it was with John in our last sermon, it's going to require all of our powers of attention and concentration in order to interpret it rightly, but it is not impossible. You remember, even the Apostle John had to be roused by the first living creature to come and see Hebraism for pay attention. To what you are seeing, pay very careful attention. Its details are important. To put this matter concretely, or to set the task in front of us in its proper light, we have the daunting task of uh, rightly understanding these symbols and rightly comparing them over against their historical fulfillments and that this is the proper task is also given to us in the very first verse of the book that this is a revelation of things which must shortly come to pass not spiritual dynamics but rather historical events are in view so the uh, right interpreter is going to rightly compare the images that are presented over against their historical fulfillments. But this is going to require two things, uh, both of which are not easy to acquire. It requires a competent knowledge of the symbols themselves, and it requires a competent knowledge of the history that's involved. This is one of the reasons why the right interpretation of this book has proven so very difficult. And why a former age of reformed men felt competent to tackle it, but the current age, not so much. Once upon a time, there was a great uh, greater competence in the history that is involved here, as well as a greater competence in the symbolism and the typology of the scriptures themselves. So what level of success can we expect Some images I think we will resolve and we can have great confidence concerning them. Other images have some difficulties tied to them that I think interpreters even to the present day have not fully resolved. I will try to be honest and upfront. Uh, concerning these things, I'll try to let you know when I think we've got just the right interpretation provided for us. And other times when I say I don't think all of the difficulties have been uh, resolved. I do think that we have enough, not necessarily to interpret every single image, but to maintain the flow of history. In general, uh, just to give you some idea of what to expect over the coming months, is said, it seems to me that the older images are easier to interpret. And the closer we come to our own time, the more difficult the interpretation of the images becomes. History is always best interpreted uh, in hindsight and at some distance. If you were to ask the question, what were the most important things for the Christian church in the second century? Well, later history has... Uh, demonstrated what factors were most important at that time. But what man would dare to say what are the most important things happening in the Christian church and for the Christian church right now? You can imagine 200 years from now, um, people commenting upon the history and reflecting back and saying these things proved to be very significant. But at this point, who can say And so the further we look back in history, the better our vision tends to be. The closer we come to our own time, the worse our vision becomes. If I were to try to uh, draw something of a metaphor, it's almost as if we walk through history backwards. And our gaze straight ahead, looking back. Tends to be best, but as you get to our own time, your peripheral vision becomes worse, and men have a hard time seeing behind them at all, but can only make guesses of what's coming. An encouraging notice about our immediate work although Protestant historicists have disagreed very much over the details of the Six Seals, they have had a general agreement over their meaning which is basically the, defa- the decline and fall of the pagan Roman Empire so again very much variety on the details of these images but the six seals there is a general agreement pertaining to the decline and fall of the pagan uh, Roman Empire I would agree with E.B. Elliot, if I could add just a little wrinkle to that the temporary success and revival of the Roman Empire, and then its decline and fall, because I do think that this first image deals with its temporary success and revival. Look with me carefully at verse 2. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, And he went forth conquering and to conquer. I wanted to start by reminding you of the uh, time frame that no doubt is in view right now. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the book, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, we had a notice that these were things which must shortly come to pass, and that the time was at hand. In other words, this is no longer like the days of Daniel. Daniel, uh, in less detail, received visions concerning this very time period. But then he was told to close the book and to seal it because its fulfillment would not be for many days. That situation is no longer the case in John's time. The fulfillment of what Daniel had seen is now at hand. And he's going to give the things that must shortly come to pass. They will begin to have their unfolding. So we are well assured by the lessons that the Holy Ghost teaches that the vision begins to unfold from John's time, from John's age. So we could expect here the very first image to deal with the time after the condition of the seven churches, which we had in chapters two and three. And more particularly after that reign of Domitian under which John at this point is suffering. So just keep that in mind and keep that in your pocket. And what we will see as we go forward is that Uh, The right interpretation of every following image is really going to be hinging upon the right interpretation of this one. And the right interpretation of this one is largely dependent upon those notices that we had already received as far as the expected time. So this is immediately after the time of John and the reign of Domitian. John tells us what he saw. Behold, or mark well. A white horse. Before we get into this white horse and its rider in particular, I want to back up just a bit and talk about the general type of the horse and its rider. Lessons that are going to apply to all four of the first uh, seals. And right away we are given another test of right interpretation, at least for these four seals. Inasmuch as there is a horse with a rider in each of the four seals, there ought to be some um, consistency in the interpretation. The word that Elliot uses is the interpretation ought to be homogenous. In other words, your, your treatment of the horse ought to be consistent and the same throughout. Your treatment of the riders should have some consistency throughout. Let me give you uh, an example if you are of that school of interpretation that takes the horse to be the church in the first seal, then you would also take the horse to be the church in the next three. Uh, you find If you read interpreters where you end up with variety on this point, you take it as the church one time and the empire as another, it is an argument against the cogency of the interpretation Uh, Likewise, if you took the horse here to be the empire, then you would take the horse in like manner in the following three. Another illustration of this with respect to the rider, one of the elements of interpretation that always bothered me about um, Jonathan Edwards' exposition was he took the first rider to be Christ and then the next three to be Roman emperors. And now here this seemed to lack a consistency and a harmony. I was very uncomfortable with the idea of putting Christ on a par and parallel with the uh, Roman emperors as if he was just one actor among four or some such thing. Uh, One other word of, of preface there is such a staggering number of interpretations, even among those of the historicists, that I cannot. It would it would take us forever uh, go through all of the variety of interpretations and weed out all the ones I think to be false and give the reasons why. Uh, that simply would would not be a very efficient use of time. Instead, I'm going to try to use the power of the positive interpretation namely if I I do believe that if I give you the right one the correct one and give you tools that you could on your own weed out uh, contrary schemes and interpretations although I I will it when when there have been contrary interpretations that have had a powerful effect upon the history of interpretation I certainly will discuss those even when not um, uh, agreeing with them but we must have uh, we must have some limitation or or we will never finish i do believe and this with great confidence that the horse rightly interpreted as a symbol of the roman empire first of all on the surface of it it is a very fitting symbol for the empire Because the horse, almost universally, has been recognized as a symbol of martial strength, military power and strength. And in this regard, right on the surface and right at the first move, it seems that the church itself would be uh, not so fittingly symbolized as a horse in this regard. But as we look at the details... And the more details we look at, the more and more persuasive this interpretation appears. This is another reason why um, I think interpreters fail in the interpretation of the apocalypse. If we're going to rightly interpret prophecy... um, The uh, the fittingness of the type itself and its relationship to its fulfillment and the more details you have in correspondence, the more persuasive the interpretation, the more powerful and convincing it's going to be. But it takes a very careful and diligent student to arrive at a competent knowledge of all of the details. And to duly reflect upon them. So, we are being called to a diligent exercise of discipleship as we do this. You should know that the Romans considered themselves to be the offspring of Mars. This is what they consider to be their national origin. They are the offspring of Mars. And the war horse was always sacred to Mars for obvious reasons. In that day, and for many ages afterwards, the horse would be the most powerful weapon of war. To have cavalry was a great advantage. You remember in the conquest of Canaan, what a military disadvantage it was for the Israelites that they had neither horse nor chariot, but they had to trust completely upon God. Now, the trusting in God is their great advantage over against the military disadvantage of not having horse and chariot, like, for example, the Philistines. Look at your outline, if you will. I've included some pictures. There is a proverb that a picture is worth a a thousand words, and I'm hoping that they will serve this uh, function. Think back to the book of Daniel, chapter 8, and you will remember that uh, the Macedonian or Grecian Empire was represented in that vision under the figure of a goat, first with one horn and then with four horns. And the Persian Empire was, re- was uh, represented as a ram. These were very common national symbols for these uh, empires, and you see them uh, included upon their coinage, that method of um, trade. So here I've given you an example from, from Persian coinage of the Persian ram. It's a symbol of their national identity. And if you look at the next one, uh, a symbol of the Macedonian goat or the Grecian goat. It's not surprising to find that the Holy Ghost in revealing... To Daniel, their history used these powerful national symbols recognized both in history and in their coinage to represent them so that the interpretation might be sound and sure. These were recognized national symbols very much like America's eagle. They functioned very much the same way. And we find the eagle also on our currency. Not uncommon for national symbols to end up on the currency. Of a people. Like the Persian ram and the Macedonian goat. And even like the American eagle. The horse served a similar function for Rome. As I mentioned. The Romans called themselves. Uh, Mavortia proles. The, um, the offspring of Mars. That's what they called themselves. So Mars was their reputed father. The war horse was sacred to him. And from their very earliest history, we might even say from time immemorial, in honor of the god Mars, the Romans held annual horse races. This was one of the ways that they honored Mars was an annual horse race. And they had done that in John's time. That was already an ancient practice among the uh, Latin peoples. Also, by the time of uh, John's rise, there was an annual sacrifice in October of a horse to Mars. So as I've said, these are facts pointing to just how sacred the horse was to Mars. And here, if you look at that final set of coins, you have on the one side of the coin the head of Mars... And on the back side, a horse, sacred to Mars, but as representative of the empire or the Roman people themselves. Notice the ascription of the horse to Rome, Roma, the Roman people. So to to draw all of these things together, to summarize the fittingness of the symbol, to symbolize the Roman empire, the Roman people, you have the relationship of the origin. That is the association with Mars. This was part of their earliest national history and practice, the annual horse race hold, held in honor of Mars. It was part of their public religious rites in the honor of Mars, and well descriptive in and of itself of their national character, because they were ever a warlike and conquering people going out both for Conquest and to conquer. So again, here I. Um, this is actually not the end of the argument, but I'm hoping that I've I've framed up at this point a prima facie plausibility as to the proper identification of the horse. I don't think that the matter will be properly concluded until we look at um, the other three examples of the of the horse, but by that point I think that it will be, be beyond dispute. Also, just by way of notice, we'll talk more about these things uh, in coming sermons, but the various colors of the horses are indicative of the various conditions that the Roman Empire will pass through, and the riders of course are its governors, like a Uh, like a rider, governs the direction of the horse and his doings will largely determine the well-being of the horse itself. Uh, So these riders are largely those who bear rule or bear sway in the various epochs of the Roman history. But we'll do more on this next time and no doubt in in, uh, coming times. The horse's color in the first seal is white. This also would be an image that John would instantly recognize. And remember, it's John himself that in the first instance has been called to come and see, pay attention, and endeavor to understand the vision. White horses were used by the emperors at their inaugurations, as well as during their triumphal processions. So when an emperor went out waging war upon his victorious return, he would return to Rome upon a white charger as a sign of prosperity, well-being, victory, and glory. This seems all the more significant and would have been all the more significant in John's time because it was contrary to expectation. This is not what John would have expected in an image pertaining to the Roman Empire. Because, remember, John is seeing this during the reign of Domitian. John himself has been exiled uh, to Patmos. There is a, uh, a persecution of the Christian church during this time. The office of the emperor is is in decline and it is having profoundly negative influence upon the empire itself in John's time. In other words, the expectation of the Christian church at that time, given the persecution and Rome's own decay, is that Rome would be quickly passing away. Just to name the emperors that... Are, that uh, uh, lived up to the time of John is enough to make the point and to demonstrate even in even without a profound knowledge of history there was a um, a historian by the name of Gibbon uh, might associate him with the year 1800 or so, he wrote a, he was an unbeliever, he wrote a a book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, a series of books really, and this is the way he describes the emperors leading up to John's time and the decline of the empire, Unrelenting Tiberius, who is probably the best of the group, furious Caligula, Simply to name Caligula is enough in the popular mind to know that the neither the emperor nor the empire is in particularly good shape. His successor, feeble Claudius, and again these are Gibbon's descriptions, but most of us will recognize them. Profligate and cruel Nero, beastly Vitellius, and inhuman Domitian. Not a good succession of emperors by anyone's standards. So the office of emperor is in decline. There was a gross moral decay among the Roman people themselves, and they were largely disaffected, not surprisingly, toward their vicious and foolish emperors. In other words, there's a level of disintegration They no longer hold the emperors in high regard and esteem. They might handle them with some measure of fear, but not with respect, loyalty, and love. And during John's time, there was the successful invasion of the barbarians. Several barbarian tribes in John's time successfully defeated the Roman legions and invaded Roman territory. When you join with all of this in the Christian mind, that God-provoking persecution, Christians might expect Rome to be shortly dissolved under the judgment of God. But the vision of a white white horse indicates a return of the well-being of the empire. What is it that happened? And again, we'll talk about this in much more detail because I do believe the more detail, the more convincing the interpretation From John's time with the death of Domitian, and for almost 90 years afterwards, the Roman emperors had nothing but success, peace at home, and triumph abroad. And thus the writer on this white charger going forth, conquering and to conquer. Rather than Rome's territory being invaded, as it had been under the reign of Domitian, they are going to seal up the uh, borders and begin to advance the empire again. In other words, they begin to conquer barbarian territory again. And this will be about 90 years. It's very interesting. If you were looking at the uh, history of the things that pertain to the Christian church in that generation that follows upon John's, these would have been the most significant uh, facts. But we'll talk about this more next week. When we... This helps us. I, I do believe it helps us to understand the importance of the fifth seal, which I which I believe contains the general application for all of the preceding seals. And the church is being called to patience. You get the. Um, Uh, You you might have in John's day had some sort of a sense among the people that the Roman Empire cannot long endure, and yet it is going to endure for several more centuries. The Christians are going to suffer great persecutions yet, and so they are called upon to exercise a patient endurance that their faith would not uh, fail in the midst of this. We'll be coming back to this time and time again, this call uh, to the Christian people to persevere under Roman persecution. But I wanted to take away from this a doctrine, which I hold to be very useful. God's love or hatred cannot be determined by the common providence alone. Our text occasions this doctrine. Imagine being a first century Christian suffering under the persecution of Domitian. And how you would perceive yourself during that time. I am a Christian. I am on God's side. I have taken Christ's part in this conflict. The Roman Empire has set itself against God even to the point of persecution, provoking God's just retaliation and wrath. And I see all around made the empire in decay. And so you can see how there might be some expectation that they would not have to endure for very long before this empire would collapse under its own weight, the weight of its own immorality. But the event in God's providence is contrary to expectation. And so imagine being a Christian in the next age. We continue suffering. Rome experiences a revival of its power, a revival of its institutions, and a revival of its well-being. Where is the Lord in all of this? We've taken his part, and yet we suffer, and they thrive. They prosper. This could be a very confusing providence. And you can begin to understand why God would give them some notice of it beforehand for their comfort. Because they might be asking, am I wrong about Christianity? Uh, you know, these Romans call me an atheist. and my religion a superstition? Here they thrive and we are like lambs to the slaughter all day long. Have I followed the Lord in vain? It seems that Rome enjoys the favor of heaven and that we do not. In answer to this problem, first consider our own text. The fifth and sixth seals reveal that the Christians were not mistaken in their faith and in their evaluation of things. They are the favored of heaven and Rome will be judged But in the meantime, there must be a patient waiting for it. And so they are not to be confused by the intervening time and by the waiting, but rather to wait, to have patience, and to believe as they await their uh, deliverance. I do believe, as I've said, that this is the principal point of these first six seals. But they must pass through five before that sixth one comes and the pagan Roman Empire is dissolved. And this would be uh, counted in a number of uh, centuries. Turn back with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If the Christians in John's time and in the following Generation attempted to determine the favor of God to them based on the providence alone it certainly would have been very confusing. The providence made it seem as if Rome was favored and they disfavored, maybe even uh, despised. Ecclesiastes in a lot of ways is largely about this problem. The problem of Righteous men and wicked men being the recipients of a common providence and the problems that that creates in people's minds. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred, by all that is done before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth, and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. Ecclesiastes is famously difficult, but there are some things we can glean right off the surface of this with great confidence. Solomon makes the point that there is a common providence. That in that common providence, the righteous and the wicked will pass through the very same events. But I would want you to remember, maybe even memorize the end of verse 1, because Solomon makes the point that by that providence alone, we cannot determine whether we are beloved or hated by the Most High. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. Why is that? Because all things come alike to all. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all That is before them. I wanted to take from this two uses. uh, And I hope that we'll we'll see as we go through that. um, Revelation is not just a book for speculating about uh, history and whatnot. But this is a book full of usefulness. To have the history opened was a thing full of practical significance. First of all, our first use is how do we determine God's favor toward us? Uh, Providence can be a helpful thing, but providence always must be interpreted in the light of the word. Otherwise, uh, providence will be nothing but mystery to us, maybe even nothing but confusion. So what is it that we learn by the word? We learn... uh, The identity of those that are favored by God. Those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who dwell in a faith union with the Savior are favored. And it does not matter what the providence towards them uh, contains. They are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Their sins have been expiated uh, by His blood. They are reconciled, and more than reconciled, they have been adopted into God's own family. They are received and favored by Him. And so the question comes, given that this is the Word of God to us, what is the significance of providence? What is the significance of a good providence? A comfortable providence? Well, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, every blessing of a good providence comes as a fulfillment of the terms of the covenant of grace. So in some ways, there is nothing common. Um, uh, righteous men and wicked men might enjoy the same rain, for example. But for the righteous, it comes as a blessing, as part of the fulfillment of the covenant of grace to them. It is a sign and a remembrance and a memorial of God's kindness to them in Christ Jesus. All are tokens of love from the Heavenly Father. And so what would be the significance of hard providence? Well, there could be several, but we could state in the negative that for the believer in Jesus Christ, there is never any judicial wrath in it. And now, therefore, there is no more condemnation for those who are in uh, Christ Jesus. So we can state in the negative, when hard providence comes to the believer, there is no judicial wrath in it. None. There might be uh, other things that are involved. There could be a chastening for sin. And so when hard providence comes, we're called upon to examine ourselves, to consider our ways... To see if there is any unrighteousness in it for which we are being chastened. But chastened as sons by a loving father. No judicial wrath. Sometimes hard providence comes for our trial and our refining. Read James chapter 1 and First Peter chapter 1. We are to esteem these hard providences as more precious than gold because they are tools in the hands of of our Father in our sanctification to make us more like Jesus Christ. Sometimes hard providence comes to us simply for the honor and glory of the Most High. God is glorified in our suffering. You remember the apostles, after having had the skin beaten off their backs by the Sanhedrin, went out glorifying God because they had been accounted worthy to suffer some shame for His namesake, for the advancement of His name and for His glory. When Christian people adhere to the true and living God in spite of suffering, it is a great sign of God's work in them. Indeed, it is an intrusion of heaven into the earthly parts. God is greatly glorified in these things. But for those who are disfavored by heaven, and truly disfavored, I mean any sinners who are outside of Christ, what is the significance of providence for them? What's the significance of a comfortable providence? They abuse the good gifts of God. They abuse um, the season that He gives them for Repentance, and they are said all the while to be treasuring up more and more wrath against the day of wrath. And so here you have a comfortable providence, but what uh, a terrible interpretation of that good providence. And for the wicked and for the unbelieving, what is the significance of a hard providence? It's a foretaste of the wrath to come, it is a first intimation of. an eternal and unquenchable fire that's coming upon all of the wicked and all of the unbelieving. But you see how different the interpretations are, and we must go to the Word, interpret ourselves first in the light of the Word, and then gaze upon our providence. But mark well, the same providence with very different interpretations so I do hope that these um, short remarks are useful in helping us to uh, determine the significance of providence for us. And the second thing, I hope also that this will prevent discouragement for us when hard providences come. We must take this as a fact and as a doctrine that hard providence is not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure. For the believer, it is never a sign of judicial wrath. Never. For the believer, it is not even necessarily a sign of God's chastening hand. You might think of Job and his uh, terrible discomfiture, his terrible Hardships, And yet, we know, having been uh, given the heavenly counsel on the matter, that it was not for his own wrongdoing, but rather uh, for God's glory, a glorious manifestation of God's grace in him. So hard providence is not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure. And so, Christian, if you are suffering... Uh, under difficult and afflicting providences, you can know this is not necessarily God's displeasure, and it is never judicial wrath to me. We must interpret it in the light of the word. When you come to hard providences, you must always return to a central question. How is your relationship with Christ? And I am sure that if you ever return to this question and consider it well, that you will have made a good use of whatever providence comes your way. How are things with my soul? How is the state of my relationship with Jesus Christ? Am I walking with Him? Am I walking closely with Him? If you find some ways where you might have displeased your Heavenly Father and have known His chastening hand, then repent and enter into that closer walking with Him and plead with Him as we see so frequently in the Psalms that He would lift is chastening and, and restore uh, comforts. But when you find no particular um, sin, when you can detect none, I know we can always find some, but when you don't see any relationship between the providence and any particular sin, then you can be comforted and claim for yourself uh, the scriptures in James 1 and First Peter 1 that I'm facing trial for my further refining. And this is good for me. But you can be well assured of this, that if you are in Christ Jesus, then you have God's favor and all providence is worked out for you, both good and bad, for your good and your improvement in grace. Let us pray together.